please be seated. And uh, do also please take up a Bible. Um, last night, when I said please take up a Bible, most people didn't take up a Bible. Then they did the I haven't taken up a Bible face. Um, at 8 o'clock, they took up a Bible. They didn't do the face. So there's a perfect correlation. And I do ask you, please, uh, many people find Daniel 9 quite complex. So I do note a visiting scholar who studied Daniel 9 and has a PhD and uh, learned it from a PhD from someone in Daniel 9 is sitting here listening to me preach on Daniel 9 and that doesn't give me any nerves at all. (laughs) Hello, Justin. Uh, Last week, we saw Daniel become more aware of the holiness of God and at the same time more aware of the sinfulness of himself, I think, than perhaps he'd ever been before. And it was a moment uh, of revelation, a little bit like the ones that many of us have been having in church recently, a a time of of a light bulb going on, something clicking spiritually and making sense where it didn't before. It was a moment of spiritual growth as an important general theological truth became clear to him. Just look back at verse 7 of chapter 9. It's the background, really, to today's passage. And you'll see Daniel exclaim. He sort of gives voice to this thing he's discovered. To you, O Lord, he says, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. He comes to see more of the holiness of God than he's seen before. He comes to realize there is an unbridgeable gulf between himself and God, between God's perfection and his own sin. But then in verse 8... What he does is he sort of repeats what he said before. He repeats the condition, the problem of humankind. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Same word, same idea, same problem of sin restated. But now, instead of restating God's holiness and just going round and round in circles and saying, God's righteous, we sin, God's righteous, we sin, and there's nothing we can do about it, he breaks the symmetry of this statement. And we always take note when that happens in Scripture that something emphatic is being revealed to us. And he says, yeah, it's true to us belongs open shame, but to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. There are many facets to the same heavenly Father. We have shame upon shame, but he has grace upon righteousness. And as our psalm so neatly puts it, there is righteousness and justice, love and truth. Radically different facets to the same heavenly father. In his perfection, he also is a God who forgives. And what it does, as the light bulb goes on, as the general theological truth of God's perfection and our sin and our sin and God's grace gets clearer and brighter to him, Daniel finds hope. Although we are crushed, God is not. Although we live in a sinful world where atrocity occurs, God can step in and deliver us from the hands of our enemies. What a lesson for a weekend like this. We appointed this passage months ago for a weekend of oppression, a weekend of attack on a people of peace, As we saw yesterday on our screens, just a few miles away, this is the passage that we need to look at. 
how does Daniel find hope in horror? What is it that gives Daniel a sense of hope in a time of great darkness? Daniel, Connie he said last week, has, has been suffering for 70 years behind enemy lines, putting up with things in his real life like we saw on our doorstep uh, just yesterday. So what makes it click now? Why is it at the moment of the lowest of the low, a horror point, that Daniel finds hope? Look at verse 2. We are heading towards the bit I'm supposed to preach. I know we're going backwards. <laughs> Don't despair, church. Oh, no, he's going to go all the way back to Genesis. <laughs> verse 2. He says, I perceived in the books of Jeremiah the prophet. This is what renewed his hope. This is what made the light bulb go on in a moment of horror. He read his Bible. That's what gave him the hope. As his life falls apart and his world falls apart, he leans into the word of God, and in the word of God he finds hope. Ravi Zacharias, the evangelist, apologist, best-selling author, stadium speaker, CEO of a multi-million dollar Christian charity, with a turnover of $25 million a year and an online not dodgy rating of 97.5%, a real Christian charity, speaks of his life before faith. And he says that for him, like Daniel, like perhaps our friends in Squirrel Hill, he found hope at the lowest point in his life. Not when all was well, but at the lowest of the low. He says as he lay in his bed of suicide, a hospital bed, having made an attempt on his own life, it was just through a Gideon Bible and the nightstand and some stranger coming in and reading it to him that God saved his life, that hope came into his life through nothing more than the reading of the holy word of God. And many of us in our church have dealt with things like this. Perhaps that very thing in our families, or some loss of hope of some kind, not just the horror on our screens, but the horror in our hearts. Many of us have have come to church with depression. Many of us have come with addiction. Some of us have come with shame of all kinds, perhaps uh, body shame and uh, a self-image problem like the one I've described I've had in the past. Maybe you've come to church with something darker. Maybe you've woken up one day feeling worthless. Maybe you've attended church with self-loathing or self-harm, possibly even thoughts like uh, Ravi Zacharias had. Maybe you have come in suffering. And like Ravi and like Daniel, maybe you're finding hope as the word of God is open to you. Daniel sits down and he reads Jeremiah and he reasons if Jeremiah says this and he reads Moses, he reasons if Moses says this, he reads the Psalms, he reasons if the Psalms say this. He cites all three in Daniel chapter 9, just immersed in scripture as he is, and he says to himself, if I can see that God has been faithful then and faithful then and faithful then, and the things he said in the past that would come to fruition today are true, then maybe I can lean in and trust God for the future as well. As he reads scripture, he finds hope. So it is a general, theological, revelatory, light bulb moment that Daniel has in chapter 9 as he reads the word. And the more he gets into the word, the clearer things become. What is the first thing he does when it clicks? 
The bold goes on. God is great. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. God is love. What does he do when it clicks that God can be merciful and God can forgive? What is the first thing he does? Look at verse 20. Finally, the passage of the day. He gets on his knees and he confesses his sin. Just as we do every single week that we gather here. We get into the word and then we get onto our knees. We confess. You cannot have a revelation of the holiness of God and the mercy of God coupled with a revelation of the sinfulness of yourself and the sinfulness of yourself without getting onto your knees at the end of it. And and saints, I want to say to you, it is not enough just to read the word or to know the word. We need to be convicted by the word. We need to put our lives under the authority of the word. As James chapter 1 says, we need to become doers of the word and not hearers only. My previous church, someone came up to me, they said just before a sermon, I can't wait till you come up and just unpick the word for us. Just tease it open and show us all the clever threads. I said, well, you're going to be disappointed then. (laughs) We're never going to unpick the word. It is going to unpick us. The word is sharper than a double-edged sword, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, like a surgeon's scalpel, like a surgeon's knife operated with precision. The word goes to work on us. We are on the operating table as it unpicks us, cutting out that which is necrotic and stitching together that which is alive and bringing healing and, and bringing health. That is what the word does when it goes to work in a human heart. Get out the word. Get into the word. Get under the word. Daniel does. As he does, the truth is revealed and he starts praying, verse 20, and confessing his sin. Then come the requests. Requests from a man and a people under attack. He says, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. Notice the word, my, my, my. As he prays, as he gets into the word and under the word, he starts to remember whose he is. This is my God I'm talking to. The relationship is being restored even in the first breath of the prayer. And with renewed hope in his God, he asks his God to intervene. Rescue me, he prays, from the exile. Take me out of this sinful place behind enemy lines where I am. Get the tape if you didn't hear that sermon. Take me out of this sinful place, he says. All of this from a general light bulb moment. And the more he prays and the more he reads the more specific he becomes, taking that which is general, God is good, and making more specific to his situation. I want you to do this thing, he says, God. Rebuild my city, rebuild our temple, take us home. And as he prays, Gabriel turns up. Verse 21, in swift flight. Kat made me underline that bit, she likes the swift bit. Very quick is the response to this kind of a prayer. God's God's prayers are answered in a sort of mysterious time scale, but this kind of prayer is answered quickly. A prayer seeking grace, a prayer of confession, is always answered swiftly. In fact, Gabriel says, verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out 
You know, his, his prayer begins like this. You know, hands together, eyes closed. Dear God, at the duh, heaven went berserk. You know, little, little, little fireman's pole, angels, whoo, heaven just springs into action at the opening of the prayer. And Gabriel says to him, I can make sense of this mess. I can make it clearer. I can flesh out this general revelation and give you something more specific. And so he says in verse 23, Gabriel, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Something much more specific now. This is why I need you in the word, because it's just loaded with imagery and and, and things to look at carefully. A specific prophecy consistent with the general revelation. That's what we have right now. You could write down in your notes, general revelation, specific prophecy. You see how it's getting tighter, narrower, sharper, clearer. Here we go. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. It's pretty simple. Really? You're in exile, you want to go home, God says, give me 70 weeks, which is exactly what Jeremiah said would happen, that Daniel was reading, hoping it might happen, and then it did happen. So it's pretty clear. Give me 70 weeks, you go home, they went home in 70 weeks, job done, sermon over. But this part of the Bible is prophetic. And we've seen several times, remember this, that the prophetic parts of the Bible often unfold themselves in multiple different layers. One prophecy in Scripture can often be fulfilled in multiple different layers at different times. There will often be in Scripture an an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, literal and close in time. There will often also be an intermediate fulfillment of the prophecy, which is years away and even bigger in some way. And even after that, there will often be an ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy that happens in the end times and is even greater and more decisive still in eternity. Immediate. The Israelites go home, they rebuild. But because of the way prophecy works, we should be thinking about the intermediate as well asking in what way this this fulfillment in the temple and in 70 weeks is just indicative of something better yet to come, some faint pre-echo of something bigger yet to come and pass, some typology that will be amplified and improved upon and, and made even clearer in days yet to come down the road, some better temple perhaps, some better priest, some better land, some better sacrifice should be looking ahead at the same time as we look to what is immediate. And as we think about the intermediate, hundreds of years away, don't forget that we should also be thinking about the ultimate. What does this prophecy mean for the end? Where is this going in the end of all things? And if you look closely enough at verse 24, very key verse, you'll see that although it sounds initially as though it's about something in just a few weeks in Jerusalem, It's also about the end. It uses these words finish, end, and seal. Although we have an immediate context, there's an eye on the end as well. And it says that transgression, sin, and iniquity, that problem that Daniel discovered in his general revelation, will be dealt with as well in a way that is not temporary, but verse 24, everlasting. 
all of these numerous layers to the same prophecy being wound up and around each other in one or two verses. We need to be tracking with this if we're to understand where it goes next. A general revelation. God is good, we're a mess, we're a mess. God is merciful. Awesome. A specific prophecy in three layers. God is going to take them home in that time period. God is going to amplify that and do something even better in the future. And in the end, going to do something even more decisive still. That's what's going on here. Keep it all in mind. Right, all of that. Put it on a post-it note. Because this part of the Bible, as well as being prophetic, is also apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. It is written in a style of writing, a genre that relies heavily on signs and symbols and images and numbers to make clearer and reveal that which is currently unknown. So God is going to make a difficult thing become clear in a difficult way, if that helps you. So as I said a few weeks ago, if we are to know how to behave, we need to know how to look out for the signs. And it's not enough just to know what signs to look out for. We need to know what they mean as well. Signs. My son uh, has a sign. He printed it from the internet himself. Very proud of him I am. Uh, He put it on his bedroom door. And the sign that he chose to print out and put on his door is the biohazard symbol, (laughs) appropriately enough. I went into his room the other night. There was an appalling smell. I said, four, it doesn't smell too clever in here, matey. He said, well, Dad, look at the sign on the door. (laughs) You've been warned. Can't really argue with it, can you? Look out for the signs. Understand what they mean. And then you'll know how to act. It's a point we've driven home in many ways in recent weeks. What are the signs in Daniel? What sort of detail is being added to the specific prophecy that we need to read and need to understand? What is going on here now in this crazy bit? Do we get the signs? Let's start with the numbers. What do they mean? See how this prophecy is all to take place in 70 weeks. Uh, Scholars agree that Hebrew is very tough to read. 70 weeks could mean 70 weeks, which is why the translators put 70 weeks. But scholars are paid literally tens of dollars to come up with other ideas, and it could also mean 70 years, and it could mean seven times 70 years, which is 490 years. And even if you could decide which of those it is, they would still want to argue about when the time period begins, wouldn't they? And others say, hang on, hang on a minute. If this is a symbolic passage, and seven is a symbolic number, and we have seven of sevens here, a symbolism of symbolism, are we reading the signs right anyway? Is this really literal time, or is it symbolic time? I find it hard to say. Because I've got a lot of theology degrees, but they're all rubbish. And I don't know. I have actually a degree in medieval drinking as well. Um, Not the study of it, the doing of it. That's how you become a lawyer in England. You just drink port with an old man 12 times and then you get a wig. That is really how it works. And if you think that's really funny, guess who wrote your constitution? The Brits did. 
explains a bit, doesn't it? No, we're not going there, we're not going there. Uh, It sounds like a cop-out. This is what I'm going to say. Insofar as I can figure out this passage of Scripture, I kind of think all the scholars are right. And I know that sounds so pathetic, let's all get on. I know that sounds a bit lame. But if you think about it, a prophecy is often fulfilled in numerous layers. There is an immediate fulfillment, an intermediate fulfillment, and an ultimate fulfillment. And so it's quite possible as you add up these dates, whether it's weeks or years or hundreds of years, there is a fulfillment at the end of each of them, each one in some way pointing to a greater one yet to come, each one amplifying the one before. And I do believe it is also symbolic, always, of course, pointing to the end and the ultimate fulfillment in the end of all things. That lame compromise of scholars seems to be consistent to me with the way that history unfolded. At the end of each calculation of dates, you find a big thing happened that is consistent with the prophecy. That's why those arguing their case are able to do so so strongly. Uh, And so if many, many ways this uh, fulfills itself are evident, it seems to be consistent with history to say that they might all be onto something, and it's consistent also, in my mind, with where Daniel goes next. Jerusalem shall be rebuilt, verse 25 says. It was. Point number one to the 70 weeks brigade. But then still in verse 25, he says, an anointed one, a prince, shall come. And he did. Anointed one means Messiah. Clearly, that's Jesus, and clearly we're at a later date now. The 490-week people suddenly win. Anointed one means Christ. And I believe that Daniel is looking at two points in time, hundreds of years apart, in one plain of view right now. And this Messiah will come at a troubled time. Well, that can't be 70 weeks as they rebuild the temple, because that's a nice time. It's a later time. He's talking about two time periods in one verse. It's confusing the way he writes. He's here and now, and then he's in the future, and then he's in the end, and then he's back to the here and now, and he jumps and mixes which time period he's in. And looking ahead to Christ now, ahead for him and back for us, verse 26 says, this anointed one, this Messiah, this one who will come from God, will look like he fails. He won't look like he's a very good Messiah. It's a word that often uh, means death. He shall have nothing. He shall be cut off and have nothing. It means the Messiah will die. But now verse 26 having kind of dashed Daniel's hopes, raises them again and starts to hint at the purpose of the death of the Messiah. The verb cut off at karat is also used elsewhere in the Bible for cutting of a covenant. Covenant is a ritual joining of two parties of unequal status. That's what a covenant is. In the ancient Near East, they were familiar with covenants. They made them all the time. We're not really. We, we have a covenant of marriage and two recent church weddings. You remember me saying that at the, at the service. But covenant is not a phrase we use very much. Um, there's something to do with, with water pipes buried underground and covenants. And a few lawyers are sort of nod around the room. Oh, yeah, we've got those. But um, covenant in the ancient Near East was far more significant than water pipes. It really was the basis of much of their law. 
And uh, what happened was that two parties of unequal bargaining power would sign a sort of treaty, a sort of deal or peace settlement between them. It was always initiated by the stronger party that the leading tribesman or a king would approach someone less powerful and more vulnerable than himself and say, let's make a deal, let's get together. Why don't you take on my protection? Why don't you take on my identity? Why don't we become one? And this covenant was formed always highly symbolically in public view with the uh, atoning sacrifice of animals. As animals were, were slaughtered and split in half, a corridor of blood would be laid out symbolically on the ground as the leader of each tribe would stand at the end of this shambles and approach one another till they met in the middle, cutting their hands, rubbing in ash to the wound to leave a permanent scar like a tattoo. They would shake bloodied hands in amongst this costly mess and they would become one. That's what a covenant was all about, about identity, about protection, about permanence, about security. It was signed, it was sealed, it was symbolized in a highly symbolic piece of imagery like this with sacrifice. And that is what God does for us. We're answering now that conundrum from the general revelation. How is it that a perfect God can make friends with a sinful person? The answer is through atoning sacrifice, through ours taking on his identity, through covenant, through atonement, through sacrifice, through a deal, through prophecy, through a temple, through uh, all of these things. You can see how all of this points to Jesus, can't you? Through covenant, through atonement, through identity, through holiness, through sin, through forgiveness, through sacrifice. It's about Jesus, 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 Jesus. This passage just is all about him. And it is the answer to that problem that Daniel perceived. And the best thing is we haven't even got to the ultimate bit yet. It's just the midpoint. Shocking to describe the cross as an intermediate fulfillment of this prophecy when we know that the cross decisively ends sin and conquers it. And yet, even that is not the end of the story. Even that leave something yet to come, even more in the end. Jesus will return. And verse 26 starts to speak about the bit just before the end now. After the cross, before the end. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now this is a different prince, I believe, that's in mind now. Not Prince Jesus, not the Messiah, but a prince of this world. And not God's anointed prince, but some self-appointed prince. A false prince comes into view in the latter days. Perhaps even many false princes in rapid succession and the evil ways in which these false princes manifest. At Babylon, we've seen Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the EU. That's a joke. Is it a joke? (laughs) And of course, the demonic prince and the demonic power behind all of these forces that range themselves against the people of God, Satan himself comes into view. We're really nearing the end times now. We're getting to find out who really is behind all of this. We're starting to see the wicked power behind the wicked power. We're starting to see why there is so much evil in this world. We're starting to see that this wicked one gears people up and forces them into doing his bidding. 
Verse 27 says, this wicked one, the enemy, Satan, the prince of this world, the false one, will make a false covenant a strong covenant. A sort of anti-covenant now of the anti-Christ. Satan always has a bogus version of God's thing. And God's covenant is all about life. God's covenant is all about bestowing upon us his identity. God's covenant is always sealed with something that atones for us and makes us righteousness, righteousness itself. But Satan's covenant is about murder. Satan's covenant is about death. The phrase strong covenant is very strange. It means one of force. One cajoled through superior strength. Not invited, not offered but forced. It's not a covenant at all, this thing that Satan has. It's an abuse. It's forcing oneself upon someone else by virtue of one's own power. It's a deal that's sealed at the end of a barrel of a gun. It's a reign of terror. It's something that operates by compulsion. And where God brings holiness to that which is defiled, Satan, in verse 27, brings abomination to that which is holy. Is the opposite of the way God works. Abomination is a word, it means filthy. It's a word to do with worship and the spoiling of it. A false prince makes a false covenant and demands false worship. And disturbingly, his power is aimed most viciously at the people who bear God's name. He tries to end sacrifice and offering, verse 27, to disturb and disrupt worship. Satan hates the people of God and hates anyone who enthrones God instead of himself. That's the power that is behind the things we're seeing on our screens. When we live in the end times, after that intermediate fulfillment on the cross and before the glorious return of Christ, there is a ramping up and a revealing of this conflict of kingdoms. As one bubbles up against the other, we stand in this time of conflict between Satan and his forces and God and his. What does the church do in that period? What does the church do in a time of evil like this? She reads her Bible. She gets on her knees. She confesses her sin. She confesses the sin of the world around her. She seeks the helper of Israel. She looks for the living God who bestows life, not death. And then it clicks. Something changes. A light bulb goes on. And the people of God, they make sense of horror. Every principality and power that is ranged against us is part of a far broader, more sinister, cosmic battle in the heavenly places, a conflict of two kingdoms, and there are just two kingdoms, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, one that seems to get worse with each age, a conflict that becomes more egregious and more wicked the longer it gets. Only if we're in the word, only if we read the signs and understand the signs will we find hope in a time as dark as this passage ends with the end. On the wing of abominations. Some believe that's a reference to the temple. If you're reading the NIV, they just go ahead and say it when the temple is attacked. 
when God's worship is spoiled and despoiled and made filthy, when murder comes to a place of peace, shall come one who makes desolate. Well, we know that. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. In the end, the power behind the powers ranged against the people of God are defeated decisively. It's the final chapter of the prophecy. There is just one last thing in these numerous layers of the prophetic to come, and it is the end of all things, the return of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the enemy. One layer left. And we, the people of God, know how it ends. Let's pray. Lord our God, we see uh, the things on our screens and amongst uh, the friendship groups of our youth, uh, amongst those who sit at breakfast with us and uh, talk about plans to work together. We, 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 we know what this attack is about. We know it's about a conflict of kingdoms. We know it's the work of the enemy. We know that it's ranged against you and your glory, God. But we have hope because we know how it ends. So, Lord God, as things click, as those general truths of of sin and righteousness and grace and mercy become clearer to us, and as something yet more specific becomes clearer to us, your, your role in Jerusalem, your role on the cross, and your role in the days to come becomes clearer, would we be a people of God like Rabbi Zacharias who hear the word, put our lives under it, and find hope in a time such as this? In the name of Jesus. Amen.